maybe just the icing on the cake here is that um, we're just about to be made a systemically important bank in Russia by the central bank. Um, so this is kind of you know, a bit of a mixed blessing, but for us, it's just cognitive dissonance. How can us, the financial upstarts, the disruptors, you know, the kind of punks of finance in Russia, be, become a systemically important bank? It just doesn't, it kind of feels like somebody else's clothes that you're wearing, uh, but it's going to happen. So it'll be the first systemically important fintech in the world, I think. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 21 Leaders Podcast, a show where we will learn from today's global leaders that would dominate the 21st century in fintech, business, and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. If you enjoy this conversation, I invite you to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Today, I sit down with Oliver Hughes, CEO of Russia's Tinkoff Bank, where he has been for almost 15 years and in the process has built one of the best fintech companies around the world. Tinkoff went public in the London Stock Exchange in 2013 and has since grown to a $22 billion market cap with close to 20 million clients. It has also inspired a generation of fintech founders, including David Vélez from Newbank. In this episode, we explore the story behind Tinkoff and how they've managed to thrive despite undergoing three financial crises since inception, Tinkoff's internal innovation process, and a deep dive of Oliver's thought process to making big decisions, exciting recent developments, and what drove them to expand internationally to Southeast Asia, Oliver's take on the future of fintech, and just a lot more. I hope you enjoy this great episode of the 21 Leaders Podcast with Oliver Hughes from Tinkoff Bank. Well, Oliver, uh, welcome. And I guess welcome back to a conversation with me uh, in a different show, but uh, it's exciting to have you. I'm guessing all the way from Moscow, from Russia? Absolutely. Still in Moscow and uh, hope to be for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, it's really good to be talking to you again, Miguel. Thank you. Amazing. And and this is, uh, not a lot of people know that I speak Russian, so this is my only opportunity to brag a little bit. Uh, so, добра пожаловать, Оливер. Спасибо, что присоединились к нам из России. Я очень рад, потому что знаю, что у нас будет очень интересный разговор. Какой молодец вообще. Давай, Miguel. <laughs> so, you know, um, one thing I, I've noticed, Oliver, is over the last year or two, I talk to a lot of people uh, who are deep in fintech, and I always tell them if they want to look at the future of digital banking, they should start by looking at, at Tinkoff. And then they ask me, what is Tinkoff, right? Um, and these are people mostly in the U.S. or Latin America. And then I say, well, Newbank, that was the inspiration for Newbank, right? It was think of, the, and, and so you guys are doing an amazing job, yet it's, uh, you're well known, I guess, in Europe and in, in Russia, of course, uh, yet not, not a lot in, in the Americas, right? So this is a little bit, the goal for me is to change that, right? Uh, but tell us about the, the beginning of, of the company, right? Uh, how did you start and then? Was your goal always to become a, a, a the financial ecosystem that you are today? Sure. 
so thank you for the warm words and uh, for the confidence. Uh, it's nice to hear. So we've been around for 15 years. And as you can imagine, that's quite a long time <laughs> because, you know, we've been around since before the global financial crisis. And obviously, we've been through a few different pivots and different phases, different cycles. And, and we, we, we were a fintech before the word fintech was coined. Uh, so we had a license from day one, but we didn't look like a licensed bank over six. We didn't have any branches. We were a remote service model. There wasn't even internet finance in Russia, uh, let alone mobile finance <laughs> or AI finance. Uh, back when we started, it was um, remote uh, service, telephone banking, and direct mail for us because the, we, we, we were the guys who started web-based finance then moved to mobile finance. So we've been through all sorts of different phases of development. But uh, to answer your question, so back in 2006, 2007, our founder, Oleg Tinkoff's idea was to, was to build a, a credit card monoline. So we, we looked at Capital One early days, so basically 1990s, early 2000s Capital One, before it became a big high street bank, which was direct mail. It was a monoline. It was branchless, largely branchless, because it had a, a small bank attached. And it was, um, uh, it was all about wholesale funding, but basically being razor sharp focused on one particular product. So we, we borrowed a lot ideologically um, and actually methodologically from that model uh, and started our own mini wannabe capital one in Russia. And the idea was to build up a, a big credit card business in Russia and then sell <laughs> uh, after three years. But then obviously, so that was back in 2006, 2007. And the world changed just a tad in 2007, 2008, as we all remember due to the global financial crisis. And uh, the long queue of, let's say, foreign banks, including US banks, who wanted to buy banking assets in, in Russia, just became a little bit shorter <laughs> quite quickly. In fact, most of them started leaving, so they were all packing their bags and leaving in 2008, 2009. So obviously, we, we changed our model, and we decided that we couldn't be, wholesale, uh, couldn't be wholesale funded. We needed to use our banking license and start taking deposits, so we became a deposit-funded uh, player. And then we morphed into online origination and online servicing very quickly in, in our uh, original early life. We added cards, so debit cards as well as the credit cards, and then started moving into other verticals. After a while, we realized that we'd built a platform, an IT layer, which could allow us to do an awful lot. Uh, we were completely under-leveraging this, this platform. So we could originate customers anywhere in Russia, and Russia is obviously quite a big place. We could penetrate all sorts of new segments. We could launch all sorts of new financial and non-financial verticals. And so this just became a journey, which is still going on now, obviously. We're only just starting, literally only just starting. And, you know, just looking back, no one could have ever imagined back in 2006, 2007, that we could be where we are today. And, uh, and it could be of this scale, of this diversity, and also now going international as well. Maybe just the icing on the cake here is that... Um, we're just about to be made a systemically important bank in Russia by the central bank. Um, so this is kind of you know, a bit of a mixed blessing, but for us, it's just cognitive dissonance. How can us, the financial upstarts, the disruptors, you know, the kind of punks of finance in Russia, be, become a systemically important bank? It just doesn't, it kind of feels like somebody else's clothes that you're wearing. Uh, but it's going to happen. So it'll be the first systemically important fintech in the world, I think. That's massive. That's good. Congrats. Uh, <laughs> of course, that's going to come with its own, I guess, um, implications, right? Being systemically important, that obviously, you know, big responsibility for you, but also, I guess, uh, even more eyes watching you. 
And so what I what I find fascinating is that you you are Chime, Robin Hood, Stripe, and many more things in one, right? And then how do you keep that innovation within the company happening? Sure. So um, I think the answer is lies in a few different areas. So it's not something that's easy to to answer. Yeah? So first of all, we're we're very outward looking. So we're a Russian company for the time being. We're listed in London on the London Stock Exchange, but we we're all very internationally experienced people and we spend a lot of time looking at other markets other experiences connecting with very interesting people all over the world in tech in fintech in e-commerce in whatever so we we have a very wide net of relationships and um, and we suck in information and we always have them so that's number one number two we hire very smart guys from the leading institutes in russia as early as possible so they're not what well, we couldn't this maybe sounds a bit unfair but you know we call it when they're not tainted by other corporate cultures, yeah. So we get to them as early as possible and make sure they absorb our DNA or we absorb them, which we right. Particularly the Russian corporate culture, which is very different. It's very different. Um, but there's some great Russian companies, yeah. Don't get me wrong, but uh, you know, we, we want them to be steeped in the Tinkoff way of doing things, the, the Tinkoff uh, culture. And so these smart guys have lots of ideas, and we want them to go and experiment and do stuff. So in order to do that, we've built um, an organization which is very flat. I know it's, you know it's kind of like trendy to, for everybody. So we've got flat organization, blah, 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 innovation culture. But, um, you know, we really work this way. This isn't, this isn't marketing flannel. We devolve authority, budgeting, we don't have budgets, but I mean financial responsibility, let's put it that way, and the ability to experiment very low down in our, our organization. So we've broken down into different business lines and platforms and service lines. And within each of these business lines, service lines, and platforms, uh, the leaders and their teams, they have the authority from us to go and take risks. The risks have to be small, measurable, controlled, and they have to do the analysis to understand what works, what doesn't work, what they can scale up, what they need to kill, what they need to reformat, and then take them from there. So this means we're constantly, we're like a big laboratory, big Petri dish. We're constantly playing around with stuff and, uh, and doing tests and some of them work. Uh, and this enables us to borrow ideas from outside, but also create ideas from inside and create solutions adapted to the, this particular market that we're working in today. But obviously we'll apply the same approach to all the markets in the future. And so we're able to roll out new business lines, new products and services, new features, whatever it might be, new interfaces really quite quickly. And on the fly sometimes just adapt them and, uh, and, and, create solutions which are which are created very close to the customer because we're completely devolved and pretty decentralized. So that's the idea, and it's stood us very well. We're also very, just to finish this off, we're very entrepreneurial. So this comes from our founder, but we're all kind of entrepreneurial managers, the management team that have been together for a very long time. So we, we recruit talent on the tech side, but also very commercial and very entrepreneurial people. So this meld, all this melded together means that we have this, this innovative Hotbed, which is quite an exciting place to be. I'm, I'm guessing that part of the, I guess, data informing these decisions, right, and these experiments is data that you collect from customer feedback. Uh, at least, you know, that seems to be the case for the best companies around the world. They're listening to their customers, always talking to the client. Have you found a, an ideal mechanism or approach to collect customer feedback? 
Yeah, so I don't think there's ever an ideal mechanism in anything. <laughs> it's always a work in progress here. But being an online player, obviously we get lots of information which you wouldn't get if you're an offline player. Well, it's more difficult to collect and, uh, and synthesize if you're an offline player. Um, so you get you know, obvious stuff to anybody talking about um, mobile, for example. Um, you know how people are navigating, moving around inside your mobile app, what they're looking at, what they're not looking at, the frequency, the dwell time, click-through rates, et cetera, et cetera, all the kind of usual metrics that you'd expect someone you know, in the mobile area to, to talk about. So that's, that's obviously one area, and that's, that's raw data which you can do huge amounts with to drive uh, insight. Uh, but that's not enough. <laughs> so if you think about Tinkoff, as well as being about data, about interface, about knowing how to use a balance sheet and, and tons of other stuff, we're also about service. So one of our key differentiators that explains why we've gone viral is, is service. So we spend an awful lot of time looking at our service. Uh, we have all sorts of different servicing functions, obviously. Understanding what people think of them, what goes wrong, routing skills uh, of our uh, customer service teams and, and everything that goes around that. So we have different tools that we use. So one of them is obviously the, the feedback that customers give us and, and all of our internally generated data. Okay, that's an obvious place to start. The second is what our customers or potential customers or former customers write about us on the forums. And the forums, you know, this is in the widest sense of the word, so this can be anywhere. And there are actually some, um, some specialized forums for financial services in Russia, uh, but there's tons of other places, you know, places you'd expect people to be leaving feedback. And we analyze that, we respond to that, we use it to manage customer relationships, manage customer complaints, which do happen sometimes, unfortunately, and manage our image, of course. But that is feedback which all of us get right the way through the organization, myself included. So I have live feeds from, from the forums. Another thing that we do is we analyze quite deeply the complaints that we have, because obviously all high-volume businesses, customer-facing businesses, get complaints. We've got 17 million customers today and growing very quickly, so you'd expect us to have a few complaints, but that is just a goldmine of information, yeah, what went wrong and why. So it can be human error, it can be technological problems, it can just be poor design of product, of uh, customer journey, whatever. So that's just, as I say, a goldmine. And then one of the things that I think we find particularly useful is what we call inference. So we take 100 cases, for example, good cases, bad cases, and more typical cases. And as a team, so it could be in customer service, it could be in delivery. So we have our smart career platform for fulfillment and KYC. It could be uh, verification of customers if we're offering a large loan. It could be cross-sell. It could be um, working with a customer that's uh, in delinquency, whatever it might be. So there's 101 areas where this can happen. You take 100 cases and you do a deep dive into each of these cases and I, I participate in these myself sometimes. So you actually you listen to the calls, if there were any calls. You read the chats. You look at all of the CRM entries made by the operator involved with the doors and operator. You look at what the customer wrote. And so you look at this whole thread of events and read it backwards to understand how we got to where we were <laughs> with a good or a bad outcome or a medium outcome. So all of this stuff helps us build this picture as to where the pain points are, what's going right, what's going wrong, where well, we've had a few blow-ups, mishaps, whatever it might be. And constantly, this is iteratively fed back into our design. 
redesign process, refactoring, customer journey, management, and obviously service. So we're constantly thinking about this. And you can never think enough about it, let's face it, I mean, this is what it's all about. So that, that's a fantastic process. Uh, so, okay, so you collect all this feedback, you analyze it, then you have these bright people who are trying on different experiments. And one thing you had mentioned last time we spoke is that you, before any new project gets approved, you also have a hurdle. And I believe it was 30% ROE, correct me if I'm wrong. That's right. Yeah. And so let's say you find a project that meets this hurdle, you package it all together. And how do you, as the leader of the company, as a CEO, land to the decision to actually, okay, let's run with this and integrate it as part of one of our live products for everyone? So as I said earlier, we, we're a very kind of decentralized organization, and, and it's true. So there are some tenets that are shared by everybody. And obviously there's oversight with financial institution, we're highly regulated, highly regulated, yes, yeah? so so there's obviously got to be financial controls and, and all sorts of processes in place. That goes without saying, unfortunately. That's the business we're in. But we're decentralized. And so we devolve this authority as low as we can and get that the decisions made as close to the customer as possible and get you know, cadence or velocity, whatever, going. However, we have this lingua franca, which is NPB. And everybody across the organization speaks the language of NPB. And this is where the 30% hurdle rate comes in that you mentioned. I'm not sure if I mentioned this last time we spoke, but we had an exercise to basically revalidate this 30% hurdle rate. And the question was asked of all of our business leaders who manage all the business lines, who use the NPB models to make their day-to-day decisions. It could be, you know, cutoffs, it could be acquisition, customer acquisition, it could be servicing, whatever. So using these NPB models uh, by channel within business lines all the time. And we asked them, if we reduced the IRR requirement to 20% or 15%, could you do more business? <laughs> and everybody scratched their head, you know, did a bit of an analysis, scenarios, uh, modeling, and everybody came back and said, much to my surprise, no. <laughs> so we kept the 30% hurdle rate, which is quite amazing. And it kind of says a lot about our organization, uh, the way we work and actually the way we're wired, I think. now. But that means that everybody's working within the same framework. So it's not just a financial framework, it's a conceptual framework where we have this expectation. It's also discipline, yeah? so we're all very, very disciplined about the commercials, which, which I mentioned earlier. However, there are obviously some business lines or some new projects, let's say, new products where it can't give a 30% IRR initially, and it may never. Yeah? So there's a bit of a punt that you have to take. And so this, work, this is where we go through different processes of market sizing, obviously doing a bit of business modeling, some pretty you know, classical stuff. And then you know, as a group, sitting down and filtering, testing, modeling different scenarios in our heads and understanding why we actually want to do something and what we expect from this on, uh, um, as an outcome. So, for example, we launched BNPL back in January, March, I think it was somewhere at the first quarter. And we're ramping that up now. And there's no way that's going to give us a 30% uh, return, obviously, uh, because it's a business that a priori loses money. And so it has to be cross-sold with something else. So here there's a bit of a leap of faith. We're going to bring customers in to whom we then hope we can cross-sell other products, and that gives us 30% IRR. Um, and that's not the only, only product that we do that's like a hook for customers. So and, and maybe there's a, an M&A that we'll do. So we, we would look at our ROE and expect 
an M&A deal that we've started doing, actually, we've become a little bit more acquisitive than we were previously. And there are, there are things which I think are complementary. So if it's accretive to our ROE, then we can do it. If it's not, then there has to be a bloody good reason to do it. So I don't think I've opened America, as the Russians would say. Uh, that means, uh, you know, opened uh, any state secrets or uh, any eureka moments here. But the framework within which we operate has to be moderated by strategic thinking processes and, and group kind of like sense checks, basically. I suppose that's what I'm trying to say. And, and I guess on this note, let's talk about some of these recent uh, rollouts that you have. And uh, there are a few things that caught my eye. And I want to start with Tinkoff Private Service, which is, I guess, your private banking service that is being rolled out. And I think this was really interesting. ECM and DCM advisory services, right? So may, maybe talk about the, the decision to venture in, into these verticals. Sure. So when we look around, we've done a lot of, uh, of expansion over the last few years in Russia. So we've built all sorts of new verticals in finance and beyond finance. Yes, we built a, an SME transactional business and we're starting to build an SME lending business. We built a, a huge payments business, online payments. Uh, we built one of the largest debit card businesses in, in Russia, uh, which is almost doubling every year. Um, we built new secured lending business lines, um, a brokerage, the largest brokerage by customer number, by uh, active brokerage accounts, et cetera, et cetera. So this is something which goes on all the time. So we have this kind of like conveyor belt of, of uh, business lines that we're launching out. And so in our thinking, we have a load of revenue pools, which we haven't tackled yet, in finance, let alone beyond finance. And one of them was was private banking. So private banking doesn't really sound like the sort of thing that fintechy Tinkoff would be up to. Yeah? But when you look at it, it's just ripe for disruption. So we have a brokerage business uh, where we're constantly enriching our product on our virtual shelves. We're adding more and more stuff. Um, we're um, deepening the experience for our brokerage customers. Um, we've got all sorts of different segments in there. So we have let's say, day traders, high-frequency traders, we have retail investors, uh, we have upper-end kind of premium investors who are more buy-and-hold, larger ticket. And so it was only a logical next step to tackle private banking. So private banking, there are some pretty good private banks in Russia, but obviously the main competition is, is outside of Russia, these kind of Swiss banks, as you can imagine. So our idea was to provide those services in a very different way, light-touch, high-tech, do it the Tinkoff way, and, and basically for the Swiss banker, in a mobile phone, <laughs> which is what we've done. It's early stage, um, but we think we've actually got a pretty good proposition together. So you've got your advisory service, you've got all sorts of, let's say, richer products in terms of um, access to different instruments for investing. Uh, we've got personal managers who can actually meet physically if required, but most of it's obviously done in, you know, in messengers and, uh, and in, the, in the chat. And we also have cash management services, so you can order one of our couriers, so basically it's, it's cash handling services, to come to you with cash or to take cash away from you if you have that. So obviously private customers tend to have this requirement. So it's, it's, it's something which we have a high level of conviction in. We launched it early days, but going very well, and we've already got quite a large number of customers, a lot of customers who migrated from inside the existing Tinkoff customer base and actually people coming in now from new to Tinkoff Group as well. So it's actually quite exciting. We really like it. And, and the fact that we're doing it in a completely different way, um, providing some of the same core services, but providing in a very high-tech way is something which um, you know we, we like doing. And then 
as an extension of that, ECM and DCM. So it's, again, it just sounds a bit weird that you know we'd be doing investment banking. <laughs> it's like where, where's Tinkoff and where's IB? But here we are um, doing ECM and DCM, and the reason for that is because we have now a very large investor base. Uh, so we have, I think it's eight or nine million brokerage accounts open. I can't, don't quote me on that. I can't remember that number, but a lot of um, brokerage accounts of whom a very large number are active. So we're up to 2 million monthly active and growing all the time. And this means that we're actually moving volumes on the different exchanges in Russia, actually doing quite a lot of it. So it's only natural that um, companies who want to do IPO, SPO, whatever, uh, or bond placements, <clears throat> would actually come to us and say, we want access to your retail investor base. So when that started happening, and this was a bit of a, a weird moment for me, it's like, well, com- companies are coming to us <laughs> to ask us to help them do the IPO, but they are in large numbers. And so then it's only natural to, to add an ECM, DCM function. So we actually have that now and we're in, on the first line, second line. You know, the, the business itself is, is a crap business, um, ECM and DCM. I, I don't understand to this day why people do it, but obviously some big blue chip, bulge bracket banks that are doing it you know, all over the world to who make some kind of living out of it. But I suspect that's not where they make the money because there is no money in it. But as a way of bringing content to our investors, you know, from mass retail investors all the way through to private um, customers now, you know, this is this is one way of really driving value and having, having access to primary placements. That's fascinating. And it sounds like, sounds like a lot of this is moving and expanding to adjacencies, right? It's, it's not really taking a big leap. However, last time we spoke... I had asked you about international expansion, and you mentioned that every time you went out to explore international expansion, you realized it wasn't worth it and just went back and doubled down at home in Russia. That has changed a little bit. Uh, You've announced um, Philippines either intended expansion, you've applied for a license, and you're taking all all the steps to expand and, you know, continue the business in, in the Philippines. Are you saying that the future of Tinkoff is in Southeast Asia? Uh, so, good question. So, indeed, the answer to this question for many, many years was we have a bit of a, a look at different markets. Um, also, we, we gain insight from talking to smart people in all sorts of financial companies all over the world. But we come back to Russia and the conclusion we drew every time was we double back down in Russia because there's so much to do. And there still is so much to do. Yeah? So, just... From the off, I, I want to caveat what I'm going to say about the Philippines by saying that this does not mean to say that we run out of growth opportunities in Russia. We are literally only just starting. There's tons of growth uh, to come in Russia uh, with a platform that can deliver, that can continue to disrupt different markets that we operate in, in Russia, and uh, uh, in a market where we have actually quite small market shares still in most of the products that we're in. So having said all that, we decided the time is right to start laying the foundations for international expansion. So we, we want to start in the Philippines. Uh, so we did a, uh, a series of deep dives into the Filipino market. We like it, obviously. <laughs> um, there's all sorts of things that we like about it. So we like the consumer there. We like the infrastructure there. Uh, we like the stage of development, if you like. Uh, we like the competitive environment. We like the regulatory framework there. So we, we think this is a good place to start. And as you say, we're applying for license there. So we didn't get the digital license. Uh, there was a last one of seven that the Filipino regulator, uh, BSP, was going to uh, issue, but they decided not to. They took a, 
they used the wisdom of Solomon and decided not to issue it to anybody because there was quite a lot of uh, pretenders, <laughs> pretenders for that, uh, contenders, sorry, for that, uh, for that uh, license. So we're going to go the commercial banking license route. So we go for the full license. <clears throat> so that'll obviously take a while, as it does in, in any market, to get a, a license. And in parallel, we'll be building a platform. But that probably will be the first of several markets. Will they all be in Southeast Asia? No. Um, we we have a, a kind of a, a bunch of criteria that we apply uh, to, if you like, to filter all of the different markets across the world. We need a market that has scale, a market that has that ticks the boxes uh, that I previously mentioned in terms of regulation, competition, consumer, etc. Uh, infrastructure very important. So, you know, depending on how it goes with the Filipino experience, and we're pretty sure we really like the market. We think it's going to be a great experience. But obviously, lots of hard work required, obviously. goes without saying. Off the back of that, we'll, we'll launch other markets as well. That's the idea. Fantastic. Fantastic. And um, just thinking about the, the future of fintech, obviously, you know, you live this every day. You analyze the market. Where do you think the, you know, the, the ecosystem is moving? And where do you envision the, the future of fintech? Obviously, particularly in Russia, but also uh, global, uh, globally as you... Uh, analyze the market yeah so well, i'll talk about russia first uh, closer to home so i think you know, the, russia has its own path as does every market and here there are very few fintechs that are not licensed who are doing stuff off the back of other licenses for example or you know picking up pieces of the value chain and and uh, focusing on those is actually relatively little of that in russia so most of the fintech activity for one of a better term is concentrated in the banks, and obviously in Tinkoff first and foremost. Although the e-commerce players and some of the online players in Russia are, are moving into finance, and therefore you know, we'll have an expansion of the fintech arena, which will be quite interesting to, to witness over the next three, five years. So this is going to drive further innovation, further evolution of financial services online. For us, mobile financial services already, you know, quite old hat because we've been doing it for a long, long time. And so the next holy grail for us, if you like, is um, AI banking. So that's where you have much more intuitive banking, recommendations-based banking. We're able to study your behavioral profile, your likes and dislikes, move your boring stuff, hygiene, financial transactions, kind of regular transfers, whatever it might be, bill payments, utility into the background so you don't have to think about it because it's not very value-adding to your life. And then the stuff that gives you, that drives your endorphins, move that into the forefront of your life. So it's recommendations for travel, you know, what to do with the kids, tips for making the most of your finances, cashbacks from partners, loyalty, entertainment, sport, whatever. Yeah, stuff that we know you like because we know what you do. We know what you buy. We know what you watch. We know where you go if you're our customer, to a certain extent if you're not. And we can drive relevant content to you at the right time in a sensitive way. Uh, so that's, that's what we call AI banking. And um, based on machine learning algorithms that looks at who you are and what people like you do as well. And, uh, and, and that's where we see the, the next few years in, uh, is going to move. But if you think of this globally, I think we're going to have a big shakeout of fintech. Exactly what point, I don't know. But there seem to be two things that are happening. So the first is that fintech is super fueled by VC and PE money, which it doesn't seem to be very demanding. <laughs> but at some time, we've had this conversation before, Miguel, so the music's going to stop and uh, somebody's going to say, okay, right, so where's the beef? 
And, uh, you know, that might be sparked by, I don't know, changing the cycle, hopefully not a global financial crisis, but who knows, you know, just a slowdown of easy money. And, and so that'll be one shakeout or one cause of the shakeout. And the other one is obviously driven by regulation. So fintechs over time seem to be realizing that, uh, you know, payments, depending where you are, but generally payments are, are quite low margin. And in some markets, there's zero margin. I was in India recently, and you, know, you can't make money in payments. It was up. There's all sorts of KYC-related um, questions and challenges for, uh, for fintechs, and there's regulatory tightening. So on the one hand, they need to become, a lot of them need to become players uh, who can broaden their scope of financial services and probably do more on their own balance sheet or create a balance sheet play. And then on the other side, you've got the regulators actually starting to look at these fintechs, some of whom are becoming quite large and saying, we want to regulate you. (laughs) And so I think this is going to quite radically change the way we look at fintechs and they're going to have to grow up actually quite quickly. I hope that doesn't sound too paternalistic, but um, but basically, you know, it's something we understand very well, being a highly regulated entity. Actually, we're regulated by all sorts of different regulators and we have different regulated entities in the group, so we know exactly what it feels like. So it's, uh, it's something which... You know, it's going to be a steep learning curve for fintechs, and that's going to be the shape of finance uh, for for the coming years. I think interesting to watch. I'll I'll be watching closely for sure. Uh, so, Oliver, before we let you go, you know, you obviously you're not from Russia; you are from the UK, but you've been in Russia for a long time at this point. You you're you even lived there during the Soviet Union. You've studied the culture. What is your favorite thing? about the country that is non-business related? My wife, Larissa. Um, the nature here is phenomenal. The people are amazing. You know, the people in general, not just my wife, are absolutely fantastic. The cultural life here is super rich. So I went to a, an opera last night, avant-garde opera. You know, it's just, it's everywhere. Literature, uh, music, theater, you name it. You don't have to go very far to find something really interesting going on in Moscow and, and obviously outside Moscow as well. St. Petersburg is the center of it all. And, and some of that's more classical, which is what Russia's famous for, but a lot of it is very inventive and, um, and uh, avant-garde. And the list goes on. I mean, it's just an amazing place in, in many different ways. Fantastic. Yeah, some, some of my favorite memories are, uh, you know, attending the Bolshoi or the many, many culture activities around town in Moscow. Uh, well, fa- fascinating stuff, Oliver. I'm even more excited than I was about Tinkoff after this conversation. You know, and uh, as I said, I'm going to be following closely. And, and uh, you know, thanks for joining us. It's it's been really, really fascinating. Thank you, Miguel. Really cool to see you. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this great discussion with Oliver Hughes. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. If you have any feedback, I would also love to hear from you. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the amazing editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.